0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from The Cyberwire. Thanks for joining us for episode 55 of the Recorded Future podcast. This week, we welcome cybersecurity leader and entrepreneur Andy France in a conversation led by Recorded Future founder and CEO Christopher Allberg. Andy France's career in cybersecurity spans over four decades, including positions as the Deputy Director of Cyber Defense for the UK government, along with positions at Darktrace, Deloitte, GSK, and Lloyd's Banking Group. He serves on a number of cybersecurity advisory boards and is currently the co-founder and director at Prevalent AI. A quick program note, we had some technical issues with our audio feed from Andrew France, there's a transcript of this podcast on our website, recordedfuture.com podcast. Stay with us.
2: This is Christopher Alberg. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Recorded Future. It's uh, great fun to be able to be here today. And, and today we're here with Andy Franz. So, you know, first of all, just Andy, it's great to have you with us. Uh, do you want to start by briefly introducing
0: yourself sure uh, uh thanks for the invitation uh, christopher i spent the majority of my career just under sort of 30 years to be exact as a, as a career civil servant in a uk organization called GCHQ. that's the uk's signals intelligence and information assurance organization and my last job there was as the deputy director in charge of cyber defense operations um but i left there five years ago to go into the commercial cyber security sector, because I could see a big gap uh, between what governments were able to do in cybersecurity and what um, industry was able to do in cybersecurity. And so uh, I built a cybersecurity consultancy business, uh, and then I co-founded a number of other companies, of which all have got a very similar background in that they're all built around uh, security data science and behavioral analytics.
2: No, I think you're you're probably a little bit too humble here, also, about some of your what you've done because you've you've done fantastic work. So, you know, it's it's quite awesome to have you here. What we're going to try to do today is sort of take a step back a little bit and and sort of avoid getting into the minuscule details and talk a little bit about the big trends and maybe even about how to, from a bigger picture point of view, help solve this problem if you want. And and so I'll I'll start it off by just saying, look. The last 12 months of, uh, I'll call it cyber, certainly has been crazy. Election hacking and massive botnets to sort of meta hacks. That's been my favorite term, thinking of Equifax and SEC and law firms, places where you sort of hack not just one company or one organization, but you find places where you can get your hands on many organizations' information in one place. So we're seeing this sort of just sort of acceleration of things over the last 12 months, and any, anything in your mind that we can learn from this beyond that it's, that it's been pretty miserable?
0: It certainly does feel miserable, doesn't it? I, mean, I think the last 12 months have highlighted just how venerable this integrated digital ecosystem is that we now rely on. Um, and I always draw people's attention to, 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 to remembering the fact that, you know, the internet on which all of this is built was never ever designed as a secure environment. And as we have become more and more reliant on it, by layering services and applications on it, probably without thinking about the security consequences associated with doing that, I I would argue now that the internet itself is, is part of our respective critical national infrastructures. And so I'm afraid that what we saw last year is just the new reality of, uh, what the world looks like and, and i guess what i mean by that is without something fundamentally changing this is just now the way of the world here in america we like to say this
2: you know we're going to have to change the tires of this car while it's driving and many versions of that analogy and to be honest that analogy makes it is, is probably not Close to what the actual problem is, because it's not like we're just changing the wheels of one car here. We're changing up some a network that is just so fundamentally embedded to everything that we do. So, so if you think about these last twelve months, if, if before we get into the details, what, what do you think that tells us about we're, what we're going to see over the next ten years?
0: I, I have the advantage of talking to lots of people around the world about cybersecurity, and um, without a doubt, the narrative has changed in the last 12 months it was never about data theft you know the the, the totality of the cyber security narrative tended to be driven by vendors by media about you know large-scale data theft and you mentioned a couple of those you know previously but that's that's what it became about for far for far too long and i think last year in in a bizarre way has been helpful in that now more and more people are thinking of cyber security in terms of data destruction, data integrity, data disruption. And they're understanding the risks that they can now recognise and understand because they've seen how those things play out in the last 12 months. So if your narrative has been around, this is, this is stopping people from stealing your credit card, that's one thing, but actually, when the, when the Internet's not there, because there's a massive DDoS, and your entire business has moved to the cloud, you've got a continuity issue. And so I think what's happening is that that narrative, thankfully, has changed it to, across all of those um, those things that I've spoken about. The question of what you do about it, though, I think is the one that is vexing everybody. Vendors, suppliers, uh, users, businesses, politicians and i think that's that's the question of the day i
1: think andy if i could jump in here it's an interesting topic you bring up and i'm curious from a policy point of view it strikes me that um politicians have been reticent to draw any bright lines in the sand when it comes to uh cyber whereas you know national borders are pretty clear cut and if you bring a, a military across a line well we all see you do that but it seems as though on the cyber part we're still being a little hesitant about even declaring you know what what would constitute cyber war do you have a, a take on that
0: it's very difficult because the same um, the same narrative doesn't exist in cyberspace there is no national internet there is no national uh, boundary around a, a country and what we're seeing is you know as as we have as as i said is kind of we've layered these applications and services on top of the internet. It's very, very hard for for some organizations to actually work out where their data actually is. And so you've got this transnational, um, underpinning large technological beast that's evolved underneath us all, and we haven't actually worked out some of the more fundamental policy questions associated with that. You're right, Dave, you know you've hit the nail on the head. The language doesn't help you know we saw the u.s talk about the so the sony attack as an act of war well you know really you know a, a, you know a commercial entity that was attacked yes probably by a nation state but is that really is that really an act of war um and I, I, I don't think we've actually if you like know, the technology has gone away from us somewhat the, the capabilities and the architecture has gone away from us somewhat and i think you know, one of the things that I I spend a lot of time talking to people is about actually getting back to some basic understandings of what you know what we actually mean here, in terms of what does it mean in a in a cloud enabled world where we talk about you know where those data services rest. What does it mean you know in terms of uh, other countries who have realised you know just the limitations and the problems that we've got with the internet, starting to carve out. You know what that what what for them would look like a national internet system and that that's not going to work i don't think um and people will try to bypass that for obvious reasons so i think i think it's we are slightly due to our own rush to add these layers and services and make money off this we are slightly struggling to work out what this means in this brave new world but we we absolutely have seen in the last 12 months the consequences of when um, you know, a nation state or, a, or a, a, an entity decides to use all of the powers of that of, of the capability against another one, and what that actually does in 2016, in 2017, in 2018. And I think that's the that's the slightly scary part that this is probably a, a little bit away from us. We probably need to do a, do a little bit more uh, catching up.
2: Yeah, I know, and, and and you think about it, it's sort of you know we can all wish for a more secure internet sort of to appear but it, but it is what we have i think and and uh, i sort of uh, immediately land on good old Rumsfeld's uh, citation from probably 2003 or something you know you go to war with the army you have and it's never really popular to quote rumsfeld but in this case i think it's i don't know to go to war is the right tonality but we we go to war with the internet that we have it's 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 the internet that we have that we're going to have to try to make better and and but that said, I wanted to sort of say, look, as technologists, you know, as I like to say, yay for geeks. I'm a geek, and we tend to solve problems with with technology and just stack up more technology to so solve technology problems we've already created. So, what do you think? If again, that more sort of taking a step back, can we solve, quote unquote, the cyber problem with more technology?
0: Uh, indeed, and I think therein lies the problem. I, I think I'd answer your question with an emphatic no. Uh, we can't solve this with technology because this isn't just a technological problem. And I think frankly, if it was, we would have solved it by now. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a much more fundamental issue than that. And, w- and what I mean by that is, yes, technology is an integral part of what we're talking about here. But so is our headlong rush to connect everything possible together onto the internet for a better user experience, in inverted commas. To make lots of money selling new services, gathered from data acquired in providing those services. You know, I think fundamentally, if you, if you look at the list of, and a, for those that don't know, there's a list that's been around since 2001. And so basically, it's when, a, when a manufacturer identifies a vulnerability uh, in a in a piece of hardware, firmware, or software, they publish it, and, and it allows people then to patch those vulnerabilities. The list is called a, you know, um, the CVE list, and there's something called the CVSS list, which is where you score those vulnerabilities in terms of how damaging they are. Now, it's publicly available. You can you can go to the Microsoft site, and, and you can have a look. But uh, since 2001, since we started counting these things, there's been a year-on-year increase in, in, in terms of the vulnerabilities that we are, as we are rushing to collect everything—kettles and fridges and, you know, uh, cameras and DVD devices, everything—put everything onto the back of the internet. And um, we introduce more and more vulnerabilities onto that platform, which is fundamentally flawed because it's not a secure environment. So. It looks to me as if we're not going in the right direction, downwards, anytime soon. So, and before you say yes, but Andy, um, you know that's because we're creating more gadgets and and more programs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But, but but we're doing that without chucking the fact that we are baking vulnerabilities into those gadgets and programs from the outset. So I still worry that we we are still, you know, suffering uh, buffer overflows. As, as an attack vector in 2018, when we know how to write code to stop buffer overflows. You know, block code reuse is the problem that we've got. Because what happens is we copy and paste code, and then we introduce that vulnerability that was in that original piece of, of software into many other platforms. And so there's, there's something kind of quite fundamental for me, and that's why I bring up the CVE list. I think it's a really, really good thermometer of your point, Christopher, is well, well. Surely we can we can we can just out tech the problem, and I think that is the problem. I think that we are just making it worse because we are not baking security into those products, and I think we need to get pretty smart about that, pretty quick. So my plea is to get back to basics about security fundamentals. I, I, I hate to say that because it does sound a, a bit of a cop out to your question. But I you can just start thinking about, you know, what does it mean to bake security into the outset right, rather than trying to retrofit it always afterwards? That mo- that model isn't working too well for us at the moment. So there's a huge piece here for me about education.
2: When you start talking about copy-paste code, and, you know, now for somebody like myself whose coding abilities have gone downhill over the last 18 years as opposed to up, you know, being <laughs> improved. But the only thing I could barely get away with is copy pasting code. And that's how the world is learning. So so I think you segued very nicely into education here, which is seemingly one of the few things that we really could go at with this problem with, with sort of in a more fundamental way. But then I think about back when I was taught how to program in, in college, I guess I knew how to program before, but I was formally taught how to program. I remember being taught ADA. Which was his language coming out of, I think, the US defense complex, but uh, I could be wrong on that. And, but I looked up Ada on Wikipedia and, you know, it was very secure. You know, I read some of the words here from, uh, you know, the signed by contract, extremely strong typing, explicit concurrency, a whole bunch of things around just building very secure and, you know, just very solid code from the outright. But, you know, in, pr- in practice, except for extremely complex, extremely sort of structured organizations, it just never went anywhere. So what do we do about education to sort of solve for this without telling everybody, it's like, get rid of your uh, C-sharp language or get rid of Java or get rid of Python. you got to use this new fancy language that's just never going to be used anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely, I mean, I... You know, I wasn't an Ada uh, a coder, but I certainly recognize how the, the guys behind that, the guys and girls behind that, were years ahead in terms of thinking about good quality code, safety, and, you know, all those things um, were, were about. And I think what's happened is getting product to market quicker, the user experience, as always, outgunned security. So I guess coming back to your point about education then, my point is this isn't about a sitting down with computer scientists this is about sitting down with the business development folks sitting with the digitisation departments of large organizations politicians school kids mechanical engineers software engineers basically anybody who has an input into into how we're building the new technology yet to be developed uh, and delivered and of course end users play a massive part in that as well because you know if people don't buy stuff because they don't like it because it's insecure people would up their game and make sure that they, they write more secure code. So there is something about this kind of the whole ecosystem. The last problem that we've had is that user experience has driven everything. And I just think that causes problems. We've got to get people who are building this. If you're building a building, you have to understand the, the role that the building management system has in providing an environment that's conducive for that building to function, whether it's a hospital or whether it's a school or whether it's a nursing home. But all of that is going to have you know a computer in it somewhere, and all of the systems are going to be controlled by a computer somewhere. So if we're thinking about, okay, so how do we embed security into that from the very get-go? What will happen is that we will gradually, over a period of time, start to harden and think you know, back to where we were with Ada. You know, we would build a secure plan for the day one. Andy,
1: I'm curious uh, if I could, you know, sort of switch metaphors for a second. How much do you think our, our situation parallels uh, public health? you know, I think about how you come at public health from many different directions. You you immunize your children, you know, not long after they're born. Um, but there's also an education component there. You know, we all know now it's important to wash our hands. And you have things like herd immunity, where if maybe not everyone is immunized, if you get enough people immunized, well, that's, that's good enough to keep some of these things from spreading. Do you think there are parallels there between uh, public health and cybersecurity?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think, one of the problems that we've had is being able to get this narrative into a form that people can understand. And I, I have always found that actually the the, the the linkage to public health has been a very useful metaphor. Uh, for example, you know, risky behaviour. If I'm perfectly healthy and I, and I get on a separate or a tube, but I sit next to someone who's sneezing all over me, and that person is taking no, uh, no effort to mask that, and I'm... You know, taking no effort to avoid that, the chances are I am probably going to catch a cold. Now that is no different than going out onto the internet with no protection and, and thinking that, you know, being smart about how I interact with this, you know, this this entity out there is going to keep me safe. And, you know, I'm far cleverer than anybody else because I've, you know, got a, a password that, you know, no computer is going to be able to, to work out. And, of course that's we all know that's not true. So, you know, there is no doctor in the world that will guarantee you, anywhere in the world, even with all these years of medical research, that you won't catch a cold this winter. We all know what that feels like to catch a cold and we all know then what we do about that. We, you know, we will drink fluids, we will rest, we will, you know, do take, we will take appropriate actions to make sure that this common cold doesn't turn into something far worse. And if we detect that it is, get you know, uh, re- remediation help from the medical community. And it strikes me that actually in the cyber world, trying to think of a business that will never, ever, ever have a cyber incident is a bit like saying you will never ever catch a cold. It just doesn't yeah. work. Just statistically impossible. So if we can shift that dynamic to say actually that the point here is, yes, you will catch a cold. But will it turn into pneumonia that will kill you? Well, if you don't take the appropriate measures, there is a possibility that it can doesn't say it will, know. there's a possibility that it can. And so getting people to understand what that actually then means in terms of their online behaviour, how they protect themselves, how they protect other people, that actually means in terms of how you interact with the tools that you've got on your desktop and how you interact with the data that you've got. I think, yes, the medical analogy works really, really quite well because once you sit down with people and say, you know, no doctor will guarantee you that you won't catch a cold, Sadly, there are um, vendors out there who will guarantee that if you buy a magic box, you won't have an incident. And, and we all know that that is probably not true. There's, there's kind of a realisation setting that we have to do. And I think, yes, actually, Dave, you know, it's a, it's a very good way of getting people to understand that if you do sit next to somebody who's sneezing all over you, you've probably got a better chance of catching cold than if you're not. Now, switching gears a little
2: bit, so... I think a couple of days ago, we saw our dear friends in, in uh, the great Russia uh, making the point that they have, uh, you know, nobody has ever properly attributed any uh, cyber attacks to Russia. And maybe more importantly for my question, that the idea that the Russian government was shielding cyber criminals is is sort of ludicrous. And so to me, that just sort of screams of like, you know, you're just like, wow, they they actually say that but if you sort of go beyond that and just say can police work and law enforcement work really have an impact here when we we're dealing with sort of international crime which i think is what it is when we if we sort of keep stay with the criminals can we really make a dent in this sort of problem until we get proper legal structures set up between us and countries where the legalities are different. I guess I'm asking you, what's, what's the role of law enforcement here? Or maybe more importantly, the sort of legal agreements with countries that we,
0: that we currently have, don't have these agreements with? I think that's a really great question, Christopher, because two, it allows me to say two things. I think, firstly, the role of attribution, you know, so who is doing this to, who each, to, to each other? Attribution is phenomenally difficult. Even when you've got all the capabilities of state, uh, it is very, very easy to look and feel like a threat actor and be completely different. You know, false flagging is is a regular occurrence. And so, what I would say is, unless you know, it's a, it's a an entity of state that's standing up and and actually saying it in a very transparent way, I take a very long-term view of attribution. It's difficult. It's phenomenally hard to do properly, and I think it is the role of government and law enforcement to do that, rather than um commercial businesses. Having said that, and, and you hit the nail on the head, you know, this is a transnational problem. Not everybody that the police and law enforcement or intelligence agencies have to deal with share the same view of the rule of law. So, you know, it's it's a very, very difficult problem. It's a transnational problem as we said before. The world has got a lot more complicated and police and law enforcement are not omnipotent. Uh, And I think we are long overdue a proper conversation about what we want our police law enforcement agencies to be able to do in this world, where the technology is fast getting away from them. This is, they've got a tough job. It's even tougher now with all of the things that have happened in the last few years, driven by some of the technology companies. Um, And I think that's the slightly sad thing here, in that the narrative isn't being driven by consumers the narrative te- is now sort of being driven by the tech companies and the government and they take taken a polar each one of those uh, entities has taken a polarized view of each other and I think back to the conversations that we' previously having this is this is fiendishly complicated there is no right and wrong answer to this We, we have got what we 've got in terms of the infrastructure and the capabilities. what I am sad about is that we don't seem to be having that proper grown up sensible debate about this um, where that narrative isn't driven by either one of the tech companies or government who got, and they have got a difficult job and i understand the tech company's position as well i want my communication and i want my data to be secure but i also want the government to be able to uh, investigate me if they think that well, i'm about to do something illegal at a certain threshold the, the, the lack of that sensible debate i think is is stymieing um, any advance that we might make in this space i think law enforcement and, and police have a huge role to play i think politicians have a huge role to play but we have to make sure that they understand that this isn't just a technology problem this is now you know an economical problem it's a, a growth problem it's a, you know it's a it's a society problem there is a risk that it becomes a very very binary uh, transparent technical discussion between tech companies and government
2: which is where it's tend to go. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. My final question, I have to take it where, given that I'm uh, my, my uh, sort of own background here is a Threat Intel guy, what role, if any, does Threat Intel play in what we've been talking about? would love to get your take on that as we get close to wrapping up here.
0: So I would say it plays a huge role, but but let me caveat that. Threat intelligence in and of itself is not a silver bullet if you haven't done the cybersecurity basics, so if you haven't thought about logical access management, segregation of networks and duties, effective access control, you know, all the things that you know a really good cybersecurity control would tell you, then actually having a threat intelligence capability can be a massive distraction because everybody, you know, looks at the sexy stuff and doesn't want to get involved in the basic stuff of just configuring the networks properly. So, If done right, in the right organisation where you've got the right people and the right processes in place to be able to integrate it into your day-to-day operations, then it's a great thing to have. I often tell my clients to choose wisely, though. Um, There's a lot of people out there trying to sell threat intelligence, as you know. Some are much better than others. So I always say to clients, take a good long look under the hood and understand what it is you're buying. Can you see the data that this is? You know, this, these things are being made on, or are you getting a, uh, a report that you have no uh, access to the underlying data on? But more importantly than that, in the right hands, it's a massive capability and something that moves the agenda forwards. In the wrong hands, in the wrong organisation where they haven't done the basics, it becomes a massive distraction, and the people spend their time doing things that they should be doing basic things rather than um, chasing interesting things around the, the dark web. So I would say it has a, it has a huge plus as long as you're, you know, you, you've thought this through and you understand how you're going to operationalize that capability and what it is you want from that capability.
1: Our thanks to Andrew France for joining us and to Christopher Allberg for leading the conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.